Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of New Books and Popular Music. I'm your host, Greg Renoff. Thank you so much for joining me. Today, my guest is music writer Richie Unterberger, who has written Won't Get Fooled Again, The Who from Lifehouse to Quadrophenia, which was published by Jawbone Press in 2011. As most of you undoubtedly know, the tagline for the New Books and Popular Music podcast is discussions with scholars of popular music about their new books, and Richie Unterberger fits perfectly into that notion of a scholar of popular music. Richie, I would argue, knows more about the period in the Who's history from 1969 to 1973 than anyone else living. He has managed to read, it seems to me, every interview, every article, and dig through every single archival source that was possibly related to this most creative period in the Who's history. In addition, Richie listened extraordinarily closely to the three great albums that came out of this period of time for the Who, those being Tommy, the rock opera from 1969, Who's Next, and then 1973's Quadrophenia. Richie also goes into great detail about the Pete Townsend project called Lifehouse, which was going to be a multimedia album that The Who was going to release in the early 1970s that collapsed really under the weight of Townsend's own creative vision. I had a great conversation with Richie. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did, and I will step out of the way and get to the interview. Hey, Richie. Hi, Greg. Hey, thanks for joining us on New Books and Popular Music. Oh, thanks for asking me. Hey, you're welcome. Um, Today we're here to talk to Richie about Won't Get Fooled Again, The Who from Lifehouse to Quadrophenia, which is published on Jawbone Press and uh, takes a look at this period of time between um, the release of Tommy, which comes out in 1969, up until the early 70s and the end of the Quadrophenia album cycle. Uh, So, Richie, our traditional first question that we asked people is to talk a little bit about your background. And can you tell us how you came to write this book and about your history of yourself as a journalist? I wrote about 10 books before... I started work on Won't Get Fooled Again, which is my most recent book. And the idea came about because I had been listening to The Who for about 40 years, since I was like um, seven years old, actually. I'm 51 now. So I first heard Who, like a lot of people in the United States did, actually, when Tommy became a huge hit. Because even though I was only seven, some of the stuff was on the radio then, and it was in my house. My oldest brother had the double album. And it interests me very much to, as a writer, look into the creative process and investigate why some ideas succeed and why some ideas fail, and also how some concepts, some ideas change from the time of conception until the time they're finished and presented to the public with both of these projects from the early seventies that the who did, they were very interesting from several perspectives. I'm talking about first Lifehouse, 
which Pete Townsend and the Who started to work on around um, late 1970, and Quadrophenia, which came out as a double album in 1973. Now, first, you have one very obvious difference. The first of those two, Lighthouse, was never completed. And yes, the most accessible songs were kind of taken out of Lifehouse for the Who's Next album, but the rock opera, as Pete Townsend had conceived of it as, really was never finished, even though it was a radio play and there's been some live presentations that Townsend has done. It's never been finished as it was intended. And Quadrophenia was. They were both kind of equally complicated, but why did one encounter such formidable obstacles and why did one succeed in spite of some obstacles really um, from the time they started working on it seriously until the time it came out, it wasn't that long of a time and there weren't that many traumas involved in doing it. Also the first of those projects, Lifehouse was I think maybe too overambitious, not just in the record that, Pete Townsend and the Who tried to do, but also in the presentation that they had in mind, making it also a movie and incorporating some of the actual audience interaction they had into the story as the album and movie developed. It was kind of just too much. And also nobody but Pete Townsend could understand the story ultimately. Quadrophenia even though the story isn't that straightforward, I mean, Tommy isn't that straightforward either. It didn't suffer from those problems as much because I think they consciously or unconsciously learned some lessons and realized we can't or don't want to try and do three or four things at once, do three and four different projects out of this rock opera. We'll make the record. That's the most important thing. We'll finish the songs. It was all Pete Townsend's songs. But also I think because Pete Townsend was using a character and invented characters, nonetheless writing about himself and the who and the social movement from which they emerged. Mm. And because that was very much grounded in reality, which might have seemed distant then, but was fairly recent. It was a little less than 10 years old, a little less than 10 years since they had um, grown out of the mod movement, the who. I think it became a much more executable that's probably not a word, but um, a project that was much more practical and easier to realize, as ambitious as it was, a double album with a big booklet and all that stuff. And maybe in a way more personal, instead of writing about what's going to be happening to the world in 30 or 40 years, which was what Lifehouse was doing. Right. Pete Townsend was writing about himself and the who and people he knew. And because it was so much ground, more grounded in Earth, than this almost science fiction-like story of Lifehouse, what's going to happen in the future when we run out of things uh, to consume and do, I think that helped make it perhaps even a more successful piece than Lifehouse would have been if that had been completed. Right. You know, um, one of the things, Richie, that really came to mind in, in reading your great book is that, you know, we live in the world of iTunes. We live in the world where... The whole, I think, notion of, of albums has really become uh, much more of a uh, dubious proposition for a lot of bands. Uh, many bands are talking about just making EPs now instead of albums. But there were such grand aspirations for what a actual LP 
uh, a vinyl album could be in, in 1970. Could you talk a little bit about how Townsend saw the, the album format and maybe talk about um, what a rock opera is? I'm not sure everyone listening may know what is a rock opera. A rock opera is similar to a standard opera, classical music, I guess is the category in which you would put it, where it's based around a story. The stories, even the most famous operas, some of them, the stories are actually fairly sketchy. They're more vehicles for the singing and the composition and the arrangements. But I think Pete Townsend, when he first started thinking of rock operas, it wasn't even necessarily as an album. He really had more in mind an operatic piece, which could be recorded or performed. And an influential figure in that regard was one of the, whose two managers, Kit Lambert, whose father had been a classical, a noted uh, figure in classical music. Hmm. Kit Lambert exposed Pete Townsend to a lot of classical music and also very much encouraged Pete Townsend's songwriting to be more ambitious than the usual early British invasion songwriting themes, which were usually romantic or partying or things like that. And as early as 1966, Pete Townsend has something like this in mind. The single I'm a Boy by The Who in 1966, which was a big hit in Britain, but not a hit here, was actually intended to be part of a rock opera he had in mind way back then which would have been about a future. This is 1966, so this is almost 50 years ago, but a future in which the parents could pick the sex of their child. We have something similar now in that when a woman becomes pregnant, you can't determine um, what sex, what the sex of the child is, but this is a little different. It's even more futuristic and scarier in some ways. And it would have at least Pete Townsend entertained the idea of making that a whole opera, probably some more things about the future would have been involved. And at that point in 1966, this was way before things like this had become common in rock music as far as anything like a concept album. And it didn't grow any farther than that single, which is very good. But Pete Townsend kept working on that idea, even if he didn't have an album in mind. Mm -hmm. With the second Who album, a quick one, as it was called in the United Kingdom, that ended with a 10-minute mini-opera. And like the other operas, the, the full operas that Who have done, the story isn't that easy to follow or that elaborate, actually. It's about a woman having an affair and the guy comes home and forgives her. But it has numerous different sections and repeated motifs and uses of voices which are similar in some ways to classical music. In a way, that was thrown together because of expediency who needed material to fill out the second album. Right. And Pete Townsend basically knew he had some scraps of songs that he had in mind and was encouraged, especially by Kit Lambert, to combine them into a story. So that's a very early predecessor of Tommy. But there's another one on their third album, Who Sell Out. The song that ends it, even though it's about five minutes long, it's not terribly long, that also had its seeds in the idea for an opera that Pete Townsend would have done, where it would have taken place in the year 2000, which back then was 30, 33 years in the future. Right. And the world would be overpopulated, which would cause all sorts of crises and situations. You can't tell that clearly from the song that is on Who Sell Out that grew out of that, Rael, but that was part of what he was thinking. 
Now, when it came time for The Who to do their next album, after The Who sell out, Pete Townsend, Kit Lambert, and The Who decided they wanted to make a full rock opera that told a longer story from beginning to end, where it wouldn't just be one piece on the record, but it would occupy the whole record. And not just one record. These are the days of vinyl LPs, but two LPs. Right. Because that would have been pretty hard to fit into 40 or 45 minutes. So they had more like 80 minutes. I forget the exact length of the record. It might have been um, shorter than 80 minutes. But Tommy told the story of a boy um, kind of being abused in his journey to a form of redemption and salvation. That's a very general paraphrase, I know. But because it had not been done in rock music to that extent before, but also crucially because the Who also made the individual components, the songs of the rock opera, very accessible too. That was a huge hit. And the Who needed that because it's hard to imagine today because the Who are an institution, but they were even worried about surviving because of economic realities. Hmm. People remember they destroyed instruments routinely on stage and they moved pretty lavishly. And although they had some success with hit records, they were in quite a lot of debt. And a lot of people forget this too. They did not have hits in the United States before 1967. For two whole years, they had no hits after they started having hits in Britain. And after they had some hits, they weren't huge hits like the Beatles or the Rolling Stones hits. So they were getting more popular here. They were known here, but they weren't superstars here. And who, um, I'm sorry, Tommy was the record that made the Who superstars, not just in North America, but all over the world. It elevated them pretty quickly to the level of uh, Beatles or Rolling Stones, maybe a little less in terms of sales, but very high up there. It eliminated their depths and enabled them to think about to concentrate on what we were going to be doing, what they were going to be doing next. Right. And you, uh, you point out in the book, which is something I hadn't previously thought about really is that, you know, when an album of that magnitude comes out, as you point out as a smash hit around the world, um, it becomes a bit of an albatross around the neck of the band is how do you follow something that, uh, like that up? Can you, can you, uh, elaborate on that? Why was Tommy an albatross? Sure. Again, were multiple factors coming into play, I think. Not only did The Who have the challenge of following up an album that was far more popular than anything else they'd done before. So one challenge was, how do we make something as popular? But also, the record was so kind of singular in rock history, the first successful rock opera, that it might have they consider a letdown for them just to come out with another record of songs right. because I think the audience of the who were expecting something that was similarly challenging and similar, similarly ambitious, right? Be it a rock opera or at least something conceptual where if the Beatles filed an album or the Rolling Stones did, they didn't necessarily have that challenge of, well, how do we make a story again? How do we make a grand project again? It was more like, how do we make an album as good? So the Who had two things to think about. I mean, they quickly followed the record with a very commercially successful album, Live at Leeds. It's just that that was not considered to be their next creative statement. That was just capturing them live officially. And that was something that 
listeners valued, especially if they couldn't get to a concert or they'd only seen them once as kind of a document of how the Who sounded live, which was different from what they were doing in the studio. But for the next studio project, they wanted to write new material. And Pete Townsend was the main songwriter. John Entwistle did some, and Roger Daltrey chipped in very occasionally, as did Keith Moon. But it was really going to be down to Pete Townsend. Right. So he had the challenge of devising another rock opera that would be as popular as Tommy, but also different than Tommy, not like Tommy Part 2, Son of Tommy, something that he has stated pretty often in interviews, and the other who have too. By this time, a lot of Who fans would think of it as kind of a cliche. They felt like after Tommy had been out for about a year, some people who had not been following them for um, that long or first heard the Who when Tommy came out actually thought the name of the band was Tommy. and um, The album was the Who. It's an exaggeration, but they were very closely identified with that. And... I think a lot of people, both old and new fans, would have been disappointed if they just come out with an album of regular songs, which is something that they did kind of consider in 1970 because they were working on songs that wouldn't obviously fit into an opera, but they abandoned that idea, and Pete Townsend wanted to take on something that was a rock opera, which was called Lifehouse. But again, a difference between that and Tommy was that from the beginning, he and some degree his associates thought of that as a project that could be also a movie with a script and a story and stuff and also would provide them for the bulk of their next stage shows when they tour because Tommy at that point we're talking between about mid 69 through a lot of 1970 they performed almost all of Tommy on stage They they did not this is a common misconception they did not perform every song from beginning to end back then. For whatever reason, they left off about half a dozen songs, but they performed the bulk of it on stage. And they were also thinking of something that they could perform on stage to make that the centerpiece of their next tour or two. That's a lot of things going on at once, Mm -hmm. but that's what they were trying to achieve. Right. And now I'm going to uh, ask you in the background of that, of that that huge burden on the back of the who is to the hardest question. I'm going to ask you the whole interview. can you explain the narrative idea behind Lifehouse? Yeah, and <laughs> you might want to edit this because I could go on for, let's say, 20 or 30 minutes. Right. And there is the book that we can refer readers to, which sure. explains it a lot more elaborately sure. than I can do in voice. But the basic idea would have been that, okay, this is 1970. It would have been set about 30 years in the future So it would have been set in 2000 or so in Great Britain, where the future would have been rather grim Um, because of environmental catastrophes. A lot of the population would have had to be living in suits or um, clothing to kind of isolate them from the environment so that they could survive. And as part of these suits, the government, which would have been kind of a fascist government controlling a lot of the flow of information that people had access to and what and limit what they could do, would provide them the means to experience stuff that um, they were not able to do any longer in the real world. 
a bunch of people have said this as an aside, but it's a little bit of an anticipation of the internet. It hasn't gotten that creepy yet with the internet, but there are some similarities. Right. At the same time, there would have been people in the population who were kind of rogues who weren't um, buying into this stuff. And in rural areas, they were living outside of experience suits as kind of um, a conscious or unconscious rebellion against what the government was enforcing on people. And also, at this time, some dissidents within the system wanted to stage a rock concert to give people more authentic experience than was available in this very grim environment where you were confined to living in your suit and dependent on the government for whatever information or entertainment you had access to. So there was going to be this rebellious rock concert where people from all over the country were going to come and both celebrate being able to have a communal experience, which is impossible being isolated in the ways that they were, but also kind of rebel against the government in a way by having this kind of gathering and this artistic expression that the government was discouraging. And the who of course would have been that band at that concert performing these songs, which were very much about what was happening in the world and in this story. Right now that's the basics, right? It gets a lot more complicated if you go into some of the specifics, like Pete Townsend wanted to weave in a romance between um, this girl escaping from her family in the rural area to see the concert and her family going after her and she gets involved with a guy. That's one side point. Right. And another one was that during this concert, things would go so well in a sense that the audience and the who would merge and kind of transcend this grim earthly existence into a different plane, a more Nirvana type experience. That's a lot to weave into an album, right? Just forget about everything else. That's a lot to tie together into a record, right? Which would have been a double album like Tom. Right. And so when you add on top of that, let's also make a film out of this. (laughs) And we don't even go into the film with all the songs done and the story done, we base it in part on these real life concerts in 1970 that the who had with their audience that allows ideas to generate and maybe film those too and make that part of the film. So I'm not saying it was silly. It's admirable in the scope of his ambition but it's really hard to put all that stuff together, especially right. if the story is not as linear or as coherent as even what I tried to summarize in a couple of minutes just now. Right. Uh, and to, but to let's put ourselves in the, in the shoes of the record company, in 1970, 71. So if, if Pete Townsend came to me though, and said, this is my idea based on the success of Tommy, I'm thinking even if the pieces didn't seem to all fit together, I would have said, go ahead. Yes, but there are some reservations there. If you're a record company, it's like, yeah, we have another opera we can market like Tommy, to put it coldly. That sounds great. And Pete Townsend is a great writer, and we know that it can sell records. When Pete Townsend says, yeah, but at the same time, it's going to cost X amount of money. And these days, well, not maybe these days, not this year, a few years ago, at that point, record companies were willing to spend a ton of money on certain projects. But back in 1970, that was not as common. And um, if the Who needed a lot of time and a lot of money to mount the shows where they tried out these ideas, I think the record company would have been more like, well, no, no, we want the record very quickly. 
Tommy, it's still fresh in people's minds. People are going to forget about it in a year. You've got to get something out. And if you're a film company, that sounds pretty attractive, right? The Who are a big group. Beatles had proven that people will come to see movies, fiction movies, right. that are okay or better than okay, like A Hard Day's Night, based around real groups. Um, you can have a lot of music in it. If it's like Tommy, it's going to have a ton of music in it, whatever he, um, Townsend and the Who come up with. But when Townsend then says, we want whatever it was back then, 5 to $10 million, people's like, oh, no, no, we weren't thinking that. You know, right. we could do something cheaply and get, maximize our profit that way. And when Townsend tried to explain the idea, I think a lot of the perspective backers got a lot more nervous thinking, well, it's not going to be just like a Who concert movie with some funny stuff. It's going to be the stuff that um, we don't understand and nobody else seems to understand. And that could actually lose a lot of money for us. And it's going to be very expensive to film the way he's thinking about doing it. Right. That's just part of the cold reality um, obstacles that got in the way that helps to short circuit their project. It really didn't get that far in its complete form, right. which is something that the book goes into at great length, but that's what happened. Yeah, there's just tremendous detail in the book, and it's um, really uh, it was eye opening for me to see uh, this, just the grandness of the vision. And then um, to the uh, when you write about Townsend's humiliation, and you, there's no, numerous quotes where he actually comes out and says, "This has been humiliating for me." Um, how deeply did he suffer personally from the failure of this Lifehouse project? I think a lot, both because. He had this grand idea and it didn't get that far, at least as far as translating what he had in his head into something that was on vinyl or on screen. The film part was very important to him. It wasn't just like, oh, we'll do a film too. Right. So you can't de-emphasize that. I think that his greatest hurt came from actually a couple of avenues. One was that even though I really think the other guys in The Who were pretty supportive of him and patient, he felt like they weren't getting the story and weren't giving him as much support as he would have liked. Although, if that's really how he felt, I don't blame the who too much. There's a funny quote from one of his associates, Richard Barnes, a very close friend of his from art college. They're still friends, and a guy he would use as a sounding board. And he said there were two, basically two kinds of people on the planet. Um, one was Pete Townsend, I mean, one was the people who understood Lifehouse, and that was one, Pete Townsend. The other was the other four, bi four billion people on the planet who didn't understand it, among whom were the who. And they tried, but in realistic terms, I mean, these are guys in their late 20s with families. They were also thinking, we've got to go out and get, we've got to get this record out and tour. They had pretty lavish lifestyles too, as I said, but we've got to get a record out and tour. We can't wait three or four years for this to happen or not to happen while Pete tries out these ideas, some of which are definitely not going to work. Like they did try to do concerts in London to generate ideas and they just kind of turned into average shoe concerts and the people in the audience weren't really giving them the kind of feedback that Pete Townsend had hoped for. But also he was very disappointed that he wasn't getting the response or the support that he hoped for from Kit Lambert, who had been very important in encouraging him to generate and complete Tommy. 
And he has said, and, you know, there are multiple perspectives on this, like there are in a lot of things when you go back a few decades later and try to figure out what was going on. But Townsend has felt that Kit Lambert's main goal at this time was to make a movie out of Tommy, which had been so successful as a record. And there was already interest back in 69 from film studios and making Tommy into a movie. And he felt that when Townsend was trying to make a movie out of Lifehouse first, definitely Kit Lambert was trying to kind of pull the rug out from under him mm-hmm. and say to film studios, well, I mean, he has this in mind, but we'll really do Tommy. We're not going to do this other thing. It's not even on its way to being written or recorded yet. And he felt that almost as like a betrayal right. because he and Lambert had been so close. Kit Lambert had also produced the who since 1966 in the studio. And, that was a cause of um, great personal hurt to him. Pete Townsend might be more sensitive than the average rock star. A Mick Jagger, something bad happens like in 71, they're told you got to leave England for a few years because of your tax problems. I don't think he's going to, you know, mope about that. But I think Pete Townsend maybe takes things like this to heart, especially because he had developed personal as well as professional relationships with his associates. Right. Right. And you know, out of this failure, of course, comes who's next, um, which you point out in the book in, in great detail. The, I mean, today it's still considered one of the greatest albums of all time. And at the time it was, if I'm remembering correctly, very well received. And yet it seems that Townsend has a lot of mixed feelings about this LP. Yeah. And I think it's really because it's not – the um, single album product is not what he thought it was, which was a project that still today he wishes that he had finished it. It's not like he looks back on it now, as far as I can tell from recent interviews, and says, well, it was just doomed to failure or I've gotten over that. It's always been, I really wish that had come out as I had um, planned it and I haven't read it real recently, but I mean, even as recently as a few years ago, he was saying, well, maybe we could do something with that. And I think the moment has passed. I think the moment passed a long time ago where you could put it out in a form that would have resembled what he had in mind in 1970. But it's viewed by Pete Townsend, if very few other people, as kind of an abortion. This isn't what I was, I thought it was going to be. Right. Right. The, uh, the songs um, from Lifehouse, in case we didn't make that clear to people listening, that it, that they were basically cannibalized and reused for Who's Next. And that's, of course, when they've, they've joined up with a, a new producer. Yeah, because Kit Lambert would have probably been the producer for Lifehouse, but he was undergoing some drug problems. I wouldn't say that casually. Pete Townsend has said this, and some other people have some drug problems and problems focusing of his own. But I think also... Again, Townsend felt that he wasn't getting the support as almost an artistic collaborator on Lifehouse that he hoped for from Kit Lambert. Right. But the reality was coming in because the other three guys in The Who wanted a record out. They didn't want to wait another year or however long it was going to take. Kit Lambert and Chris Stamp, the other Who manager, um, didn't want to wait indefinitely either. So there was pressure on Townsend and The Who to get a record out. It sounds a little weird now where major groups, major acts often go, what, five to ten years before a record? Sure. But back then, 
um, more than a year, and certainly two years or so, that was considered an enormous gap. So Glenn Johns, who the who had worked with in the early part of their career and who was about the most respected engineer on the planet then and was starting to be a producer as well as an engineer, um, was brought in. I don't know if that's the right word, but he came into the project. Right. And he was crucial in kind of being a, um, I don't know what you would call it, a midwife or a, um, a kind of person who was necessary to say to Townsend and the Who to some degree, this is going to work as a single album, the material that you have. It's not going to work as a double album or work as well for various reasons. You haven't finished it yet. That's one of the main reasons, but also it's just not as consistent and the work that you've done so far has been on um, the stronger songs and we should really emphasize the stronger songs. Right. At the time, I don't think Pete Townsend was real obstinate about it. I think he conceded this is what we should be doing now just to keep the band active. Right. But Glenn Johns was certainly instrumental in kind of selecting the strongest Songs, the songs I've worked as songs, even if you knew whether they had come from a rock opera or not, and grouping them together into a whole and giving them kind of a slick production where it could be a very commercial product as right. well as something that retained the uh, integrity of the individual songs. And that's what Who's Next ended up being, except for Entwistle's contribution to Who's Next, My Wife, which was not um, considered ever to be a part of the rock opera. All the other songs were, right. to some degree. But when you put them together, nobody or very few people at the time would have either would have suspected that they came from a rock opera or would have thought, well, this would have been a lot better if we had a story that was more coherent or if there was some story that linked these together. Right. Just came off as kind of like these, this is a group of um, a cluster of first rate songs. Right. Right. The, uh, thing too about those great songs of course is the the use of synthesizers which was as you point out in the book uh really pioneering by townsend yes and in a few ways synthesizers had been used on rock records going back to about 1967 but it was usually like as a special effect not so much as the carrying or being very crucial to the bed of a song and Townsend was very important in integrating that into rock arrangements, not just as um, an effect, but as a melodic instrument, carrying a lot of the weight of the song and the arrangement. But also he played it himself. And not many um, people in the world could play that kind of material themselves on the synthesizer. And he was um, a pioneer of mastering that technology and also of recording the music on synthesizer at home. Remember back then synthesizers were much huger than they are now. And it just wasn't even that easy to have, uh, to be able to have a home studio space where you could use that comfortably. And they were much more expensive, relatively speaking. So not many people could afford that kind of technology outside of a recording studio. Now Pete Townsend could because of the success of Tommy. So he was a pioneer in that area too. And he, um, composed and performed a lot of the material for Quadrophenia, too, on synthesizers. That's 
as equally important a part of the, kind of the genesis of quadrophenia as it was of Lifehouse slash Who's Next. Right. The uh, um, thing I was going to interrupt you about a moment ago is that there's this tremendously uh, rich picture of um, Townsend on the cover of the of the book sitting with all this technology, which literally is floor to ceiling. And it really kind of, I think, uh, is a great metaphor for his, maybe he being a little bit trapped by technology, as we'll talk about a little bit later when they try to bring Quadrophenia on the road. But um, yeah, I mean, obviously to have that type of technology in your home at that time must have been an extraordinarily expensive uh, undertaking, but yet he was so committed to this that this is what his, you know, he was, he was going to do it regardless of what it, what it cost. Yeah. And there aren't that many people, First of all, there aren't that many people with Pete Townsend's vision, but there are, you know, a fair amount in in the art world, not even just confining yourself to rock music. There aren't that many people with that kind of determination right. to have this grand idea and see it through um, with enormous effort and time spent doing so. I mean, even in my little world of publishing, I get... I hear about so many ideas. I want to do this book or this story and it never gets beyond the first two days when people realize, Oh, it's going to be a lot of money and I'm going to have to spend a lot of my savings on this and also have to work weekends for two years. That stops almost everybody. Right. And Pete Towns is one of the most famous rock musicians in the world. And it doesn't stop. I mean, right. if you read his recent memoir that took a, fa- a toll on his family and his associates because his dedication was so extreme, but he had it. Right. Right. And, and then, uh, you know, so this this months and months of dedication ends up producing Who's Next instead of Lifehouse. And one thing I thought was really quite remarkable about the book is that, of course, you um, you point out that when the album comes out, it's commercially successful. But there's this political backlash in England to it, which is interesting considering the Who is a, a band known for my generation and was sort of a... a quote unquote, a band of the people at one time, but yet there were some people in the counterculture who were very angry with Townsend. That is interesting. At the same time, I wouldn't want to overstate that. I don't think that in the counterculture, like half or more of the people listening to who's next were angry or disillusioned or disappointed with Townsend, but a very prominent, well, the most prominent, what they would call underground paper, then international times did take Townsend to task for, I don't know if selling out would be the right term, but not being as committed to the revolution as he should have been as kind of one of the prominent spokespeople for um, his generation. And I interviewed the guy who wrote more about that in international times than anybody else, Mick Farron, who was a musician and became a pretty well-known rock critic. And I think it wasn't so much like you're selling us out as like, well, we thought you were going to be, you know, standing shoulder to shoulder with us overthrowing the establishment by any means necessary. Right. And you're saying, especially, and won't get fooled again. Well, it's futile. I don't think he was saying it was futile and won't get fooled again, but I think that he was being realistic. It wasn't just about the counterculture of 1970, but about all revolutions. There's always this danger, this threat that the system that replaces the system that was overthrown is also going to be as corrupt that all systems are going to be corrupt. Maybe it's not an individual system. That's a problem. It's any system. That's a problem. And it's, I really think not too much of a stretch to see 
is to look at our own times and see that happening at any time. You see that happening. Look right. at what's happening in Egypt now. There's a lot of disillusion about what's happening with the shift in the power structure and worries that things are going to be even worse than before. Right. And it's something that hopefully a population and a government struggles through to get more form of justice. But it's never an easy process, and often it's a very disillusioning one because so many promises are made and so many heroes come out of these revolutionary movements, and they're just human people, and they can't live up to the highest ideals of the propaganda that they espouse. I mean, I don't want to use too many individual examples, but you can look at many from our lifetime. Look at what happened in Cuba, how many hopes people had for the system there. Um, Look at other countries which don't have that complicated relationship with the United States, and you'll see that over and over again. And I think that's what... Townsend was illustrating in song and maybe it was taken to heart more as like, well, in England in 1970 and 1971 or in the West, you know, also counting Europe and North America, there's no point in fighting the system because any system is going to be corrupt. I don't think that was Townsend's point. I think it was like more of a cautionary full picture of what was going on. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I, I was, when you were, Speaking a moment ago, I thinking back to um, the Rodney King verdict, and uh, I don't want to take us too far afield here, but I remember a clip hearing, I think, Carol Miller from WNEW in New York saying when the acquittal came through, she said, you know, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. And, you know, that just sort of, right, just sort of fit for that. And, of course, everybody who was listening to WNEW knew exactly what she was was talking about. And, uh, yeah, it's um, it really was, to me, a... Uh, a revelation in some ways to, to realize how deeply uh, some people took these messages that were coming out on records in the context of the time. It's, you know, as a historian, it's sometimes even for me, who's trained to do this, it's, it's, you, you forget to put yourself back in 1971 when you're listening to a piece of music. Yeah. And again, I don't, I wouldn't want to leave the impression that it was, a majority opinion, right. but it was an interesting right. one by people who really cared about the who, who were disappointed right. in them. Right. And, um, you know, I wanted to move on to Quadrophenia and I, I got to tell you, the thing that comes through, uh, in the book through your writing so clearly is, as you mentioned a minute ago is Townsend's ambition and determination. Cause I got to tell you, if I had been humiliated the way Townsend had been humiliated, and even if I had been someone who had recorded Tommy and, um, had been a uh, massive success with this, I think on the the heels of who's next, I mean, you think you just sort of say, hey, you know what? Maybe we should just try to do who's next too. But yet he comes <laughs> up with this equally grand project in some ways of Quadrophenia, which is going to have new recording techniques, synthesizers, double album. Um, what, what did you think when you were looking at the way that Townsend sort of launched into this next project? I think that I mentioned this near the beginning, but he realized he couldn't go to the other guys and say, Oh, I've got, it's not Lifehouse, but I have an idea, which again, we're going to try and do a movie and a tour and an album at the same time. And it's going to be something that um, I can't really explain to you, but don't worry. When, when we uh, work on the music, it'll become clearer. I think he knew that that wouldn't fly. And he made, the parameters of what he was doing more manageable, but still very ambitious. And he made it different from both Tommy and 
Life, um, Lifehouse. It's kind of funny that the main protagonist of Quadrophenia, his name is Jimmy, which isn't that far from Tommy. He could have called the rock opera Jimmy, but it's not the same as Tommy. And by looking at his own past and the Who's only past, he realized we have a lot of raw material here that we can make into a great record. Looking at our own past, which nobody in rock had done that before. There might have been songs referring to a band's own history here and there, but not a whole story. And the Who had a great story. They had about, you know, one of the best ones besides the Beatles, as far as how they formed and how they became popular. Right. And when he, I think that when he started to work on it and develop it with the rest of the band, that was something that they could relate to Mm -hmm. a lot more than this story that's, in the future with all these different elements going on that we don't really understand any of the elements and somehow we have to bring them together. They knew this is about our audience and the main character who's experiencing this stuff in Quadrophenia was more or less a typical guy who came to our shows. And that's something that they could get to grips with immediately. I don't know if it really was ever an issue for them at all. I'm going to Pete Townsend and saying, well, we don't understand the story or it's not clear or this is really weird. I don't think anything like that ever came up. And, and they could also very um, clearly blend the hard rock, almost progressive rock that they were working on at the time, even on you know their singles, which had nothing to do with the rock opera, and blend that with this story and also with synthesizer technology. Often at the time, you know, these art rock records, the synthesizers or the kind of the grand classical themes would maybe overwhelm the rock elements of the music. Right. But there was a lot for all the three other guys to do, even though they didn't write any of the other songs right. as far as Entwistle's bass, but also his horn playing, which right. a lot of people overlook. Um, Daltrey had a lot of lead vocals to sink into. Um, and Keith Moon had... Um, some of his greatest drumming on that record because there weren't that many ballads. There were, never were with the who, but um, a lot of the stuff was the kind of hard charging uh, material at which right. he sell. Right. The, uh, the, the tour, the tour begins and um, you do a great job in the book of going through the tour and really showing some of the frustration. There's this, very notorious moment on stage in Newcastle where Townsend destroys the soundboard because the tapes that they've decided to play against or the tapes that they're going to play against, which are the, the, the uh, background synthesizers from uh, the LP fail. Um, but there's also a couple of great Keith Moon stories in it. And I always think that uh, any, any uh, discussion of uh, the who during this time period needs a couple of good Keith Moon stories. Could you share a couple of those with the listeners? Keith Moon stories from the tour specifically. Oh yes, I, I'm sorry. Yeah, I was referring to the uh, the hotel room and then the uh, oh, I see the uh, failure on the uh, the drums in San Francisco when the Who did their first show. And you got you have to remember they had great expectations for the first time they toured after or as Quadrophenia was coming out because um they now had a rock opera to build a new set, a new onstage repertoire around. They didn't have to um, play much from Tommy. 
And so they come to the United States for a pretty elaborate by 1973 standards tour. Right. Starts off in California and in San Francisco, Keith Moon takes some unholy assortment of drugs or, and passes out during the show near the end of the show, but passes out during the show. And they actually try to carry on, you know, revive him off stage. He comes back on, but, um, he passes out and he can't finish the show. And it's hard to imagine this happening with anybody else then or now, actually, instead of just saying, well, we're going to have to stop the show. They asked the audience in San Francisco, can anybody here play drums? Can anybody finish the show on drums? And somebody comes up, this young guy, I think um, he was about 19 or so from the audience and knows the songs or can basically play, uh, you know, two or three more songs well enough for them to finish the show. Right. And a very spontaneous moment. It was filmed, you know, kind of not with any documentary purposes, but it's probably on YouTube if you're curious. And um, Keith Moon having at that time, you know, kind of a Keith Richards um, constitution, at least for a few years, was able to relatively quickly resume duties on his tour. Also in Montreal, I mean, this wasn't just the Who, but um, I'm sorry, it wasn't just Keith Moon, but it was um, most of the Who. They were, they kind of pioneered hotel room trashing. And in Montreal, they got out of hand and the police were called and they had to actually spend the night in jail. Right. The most peculiar aspect of that to me is that Roger Daltrey was not involved in this incident at all. He was asleep somewhere else. But because the Who were so notorious, when there were arrests made, it was kind of like, okay, the whole Who... Everybody in the Who goes in jail, including Daltrey, who had nothing to do with who <laughs> habitually would go to bed early right? because he was very concerned about keeping his voice in shape. So he would actually go to, you know, early by our standards, it might not be that early, but, you know, maybe a couple hours after the show had ended, he would go to bed and not partake in these festivities. So he was really angry. And someone involved in the promotion of the show basically had to be dragged out um, to bail them out and um, get them out of jail so that they could make their next show, which was in Boston the next day. And for the who, it was just kind of, you know, part of the way of doing business. It's not the way I would do business if I toured and I wouldn't be happy trying to manage or road manage people like that. But it was just the way that they blew off steam even at this point. And maybe part of the frustration had to be with, when Tommy came out and when they played the record on stage, immediately it went over great yeah. with Quadrophenia. That wasn't the case right. because of a couple, well, a few things. I think the songs, even though they were really good, they weren't as immediate classics as say something like see me, feel me or pinball wizard or um, some of the other songs from Tommy. And because the album had just came out, come out, a lot of the audience didn't know the song, so they weren't getting as immediate, grand, enthusiastic reaction as they maybe hoped for. But also, there were technical problems because they were trying to play with synthesizers on stage. Pete Townsend played synthesizers on the record, but he was the guitarist on stage. So they played with backing tapes, and it was often hard to sync it up, or sometimes the tapes would malfunction. 
I think looking back, they took those failures too much to heart. They were, when you listen to some of the tapes, some of them are on Wolfgang's wall, the website, things they did like in Philadelphia. They sound pretty good. It doesn't sound like an enormous handicap that it doesn't sound exactly like the record where the synthesizers are not as mixed as prominently as well as you might think. I think by the standards of 1973, it worked pretty well, but I think we're coming back to, again, the difference between what Pete Townsend had in his head and what was coming right. out on stage. Right. It was frustrating to him because he had a certain sound and presentation in mind, and it wasn't as uh, flawless or majestic as he, he thought it was. And after the Who toured Quadrophenia for just a few months, they stopped doing it. Yeah. Now, of course, they revisited it in recent years with Keith Moon gone and then Entwistle gone. I don't think it's the same thing, but they do the whole thing now because technology permits presentation of the whole rock opera without these screw-ups. Right. Back then, it wasn't possible. Yeah. I I, I just saw them uh, and they came through Tulsa. And, um, you know, one of the things that popped into my mind is the – you know, for me, Quadrophenia, the, the most poignant moment on it is is Bellboy, just because I think um, Moon was such a tragic figure in a lot of ways. Wanted to seem like someone who wanted to be loved by all these people, and yet had these tremendous problems that uh, demons that ended up consuming him. Um, could you spend a moment explaining to the listeners exactly how uh, um, Moon's signature song, Bellboy, was actually performed on stage? Because I think that really encapsulates the problems the Who had. Well, now with YouTube, you know, it seems like everything's up. So I would recommend this specific clip from 1974 in Charlton, um, a, a football, what they call football, a soccer arena right. in London. They gave a huge concert and it was filmed. So luckily, Bellboy is on film from, I don't know, like six months after Quadrophenia came out. And Roger Daltrey sings the bulk of the song. But then when they come to Quadrophenia, Keith Moon takes that very memorable, almost cameo. He kind of almost speaks the part of the bellboy, this really kind of tragic comic figure. When they performed it on stage, when they performed on stage in general by 1974, Keith Moon was often playing with headphones on, these really big headphones, not smaller things which you could get away with today, just so he could hear not just what the other guys were playing, but also the backing tapes. But when it comes to his point in the song, he has to tear off the headphones so he can kind of hear himself sing better and keep up with what's happening on stage better. So he kind of rips them off, but he doesn't manage to get them off completely. They're kind of dangling around his neck and he speaks the part of the bellboy, which is fairly lengthy, you know, that middle section. Right. And then he has to physically get those headphones, these really big things back on his head before or as they go back into the section where Daltrey is singing. And then again, near the end, where he has to um, take his vocal part again. So they, I mean, the way the song is played in this footage, it's okay. It's just funny to see him doing it because he's obviously a struggle for him to rip those headphones off, get them back on, rip them off again. Um, again, these days, that wouldn't be so much of a problem. And it's really not even that much of a problem back in those days, but it must have been awkward for him and the band to have to deal with that kind of setup. Right. Yeah. It's, um, I also think about the, uh, the, um, who are you video where you, you can see them performing in the studio and that's on YouTube. That's kind of an iconic who video, um, where he has the uh, headphones duct taped to his head 
you know, so it's just sort of, uh, yeah, he was, uh, without a doubt, one of a kind. And, uh, it's, uh, I could go on forever talking about Keith Moon, but, um, in terms of trying to, to wrap up here, cause I know you have other things you need to do. Um, think about this period and w- what would you say the greatest success for the who was in this whole period of these, this album sequence of from Tommy, maybe the end of Tommy up through Quadrophenia. I think it was absolutely the Quadrophenia album. And even though Daltrey certainly, and I think once in a while Townsend has said, Oh, I wish it was mixed better. Right. I think that for all the things that could have gone wrong with that record, it stands up very well. I'm talking about the original record, not the film which is very good and not the stage presentation of recent years, the original 1973 record. It's very good from beginning to end. Yeah. I think a very underestimated triumph of that record. And I appreciated the opportunity to go into detail about it in the book because I hadn't seen it before. All the sound effects for the record, they were integrated really well, better than any other rock record, except maybe dark side of the moon. Would I, yeah. that. And dark side of the moon wasn't as long. And it gives you, it helps really give you the sense that you're almost in a movie when you listen to the record. Um, I also think, and Townsend might not agree with this because because I know this was very important to him. I think some critics felt it was a failure of the Quadrophenia record. That one dimension of what Townsend was trying to project, which was this guy is quadraphonic. It's not really a technical psychiatric term, but it's basically four personalities in this one guy right. that it didn't come through that well, that it kind of made the record too confusing. Now, if the record had not been titled Quadrophenia and he hadn't like assigned certain songs to four members of the who and said, this is representing Keith and this is representing John and so forth. If he hadn't done any of that, the who hadn't done any of that, you wouldn't have missed it. Yeah. It just works as a story of a really troubled, confused guy going through like a very intense part of his like late teenage years, probably only a few weeks if you broke it down into real time. So it was a triumph. Um, even though a lot of things did go wrong during the recording, which I discussed in the book, like the studio had to be built basically as the record was being made and there was a flood in the studio and um, the problems in the stage presentation when they had finished the record, the record itself um, was really fine and it stands up really well. And once in a while, Pete Townsend these days will say, well, that's like my proudest achievement. I think once in a while he realizes that Um, there was no serious flaw. I mean, Daltrey sometimes in the mix, he's a little blurry. That's not a big deal. And if it is a big deal, you still have that lyric sheet, even with the CDs, I think to follow along with what's going out with with what what he's actually singing. Right. And one of the great, um, headphone albums, which I think is kind of a lost concept to a lot of people today. I mean, absolutely one of the, as you said, with the sound effects, um, R- Richie did such an amazing job of, of tracking of all the, the um, what would you call it, the uh, remote recording they did uh, where they the uh, Townsend and other engineers would go to the beach or go to the train tracks. And it's just incredible amount of time and effort that they put into trying to put this, this as you said, this, this uh, audio movie onto tape. Something that mystified me about the recent box set reissue of Quadrophenia was, this is only about a couple of years ago too, is that it's got some bonus material and some of the bonuses are 5.1 surround sound mixes. I don't have that technology here, but I was able to listen to it once. But they only present the mixes of about half the songs. It's mystifying. 
why wouldn't you try and make a surround sound mix of, I think it's all 17 songs, right. even if some of the original tapes are hard to locate and they're damaged or whatever. Why not try just to make the best facsimile that you can? Right. Because this is an album that is best experienced from beginning to end, especially if you're going to bother listening on headphones, you know, back in the day, I'm old enough to have used headphones, you know, plug them into a jack on the yep. stereo sound console. Or if you're going to have um, a stereo version today, whether it's a home thing, which people do have they're pretty expensive or in a theater yeah so yeah I'm that, that will be on the next deluxe edition of quadrophenia yeah and um just one one quick aside and we'll we'll um we'll wrap up here is the uh the album itself was supposed to be recorded in quadraphonic format in other words four separate speakers and uh yeah. of channels of sound and that's something else that you you uh you talk in uh great detail about the the challenges that ended up happening so yeah it's kind of mystifying that they wouldn't have done that yeah, I guess the moment has passed. I mean, that was another bit of baggage. They wanted to make that a quadraphonic record, and the technology of the day wouldn't permit the standards right. that Pete Townsend wanted. But when you listen to the record in stereo now, I don't think the average person misses it. Yeah, sure, Townsend and the producer and the engineer knew what the goals that were in mind, and they might miss it. But I don't think the average Who fan, or I think very, very few Who fans, would say, I really wish that was in quadraphonic sound. That would sound so much better. I think that's a very rare opinion if ever. Right. right. Well, when we close things out here on New Books and Popular Music, Richie, we like to give our guests the opportunity to talk about their next project or what they're working on now. Okay. Well, preparing ebook versions of some of the books that I've released in the past. I have the digital rights to six of my books now, and I don't know if I'll be doing ebook versions of all six of those, but I've already already working on doing three of those. And I hope this is a bigger deal to the average reader than a lot of these ebook versions are, because I've taken the opportunity, because you can with the technology of ebooks, to add a lot of new material. Right. So, for instance, I wrote a two-part history of 1960s folk rock. I always thought that should have been one book, but it wasn't for production reasons. And now it's going to be combined to 600 pages. But also I'm adding 15,000 or so words of material from new things I discovered and additional interviews I did. And I'm also adding a 75,000 word new mini book, which is kind of the liner notes to my imaginary ACD box set, which would be the ideal companion disc to the books. Right. It won't exist physically because for production costs and licensing reasons, it's very hard to assemble something like that, but at least you'll have the liner notes. And with internet technology these days, it's pretty easy to access the great majority of that material, whether you buy it or not. So you have that to kind of read along with, because a lot of people say to me, I wish I could hear a lot of this stuff, especially the lesser known stuff that you're writing about in the books, even for the who books, even Though those records were very big sellers, I write about some unreleased material, some demos. Fortunately, a lot of those have finally come out with expanded editions of those records. But still, to be able to listen to stuff as you read would be a great thing. It seems like we're still not at that point, either in terms of technology or in terms of getting the rights 
to have readers to be able to hear that stuff if they want as they read. Right. Well, I, this, if I interrupt you very quickly, yeah. you know, it sounds like you're you're conceiving of the the life house of the uh, of your own life there. Um, yes, but I I know my limits, and I'm not doing uh, <laughs> material. I mean, all the as we speak, all of the text is done for this. But right. now, I've never prepared graphically an ebook version, so I'm working on that. I hope that. Um, Certainly by the end of the year, at least three of them will be available, um, maybe within a couple of months. But because I haven't gone through this before, um, I'm not going to make any promises like Pete Townsend might have, like, right. you know, back in 1970, oh, in a few months, we should right. have a film and an album out. Right. Well, well, fair enough. Um, where can people catch up with you online, Richie? My website is richieunterbreaker.com, and that has information about all of my books and my current activities. I also teach some courses on rock history, if you're living in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I give public events where I discuss rock history using rare audiovisual material, and I write for some magazines, so all the information is on that site. Perfect. Richie, thank you so much for taking the time to come on. I can't recommend your book enough. Um, if you're a Who fan, if you're a fan of that period in rock history, it's just a tremendous read, and I just am grateful. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Great. Hey, no problem, Richie. Thanks a lot. Take care. You've been listening to an episode of New Books and Popular Music. My guest was Richie Unterberger, who wrote the book Won't Get Fooled Again, The Who, From Lifehouse to Quadrophenia. Please subscribe via iTunes to New Books and Popular Music so you won't miss another episode. I'm your host, Greg Renoff. Thanks for joining me.